Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 45, and we're going to go through chapter 45, a short chapter, uh, and then chapter 46 as well. It's about a faithful servant in chapter 45 and a prophecy against Egypt in chapter 46. Chapter 45 is a message to Baruch. Now, Baruch was a friend to Jeremiah. He was like an assistant to Jeremiah. And Baruch was the one who wrote the words of Jeremiah on the scroll that was sent to King Jehoiakim. And then remember, Jehoiakim took that scroll and he cut it with a knife and threw it in the fire. This chapter, 45, is not in chronological order. It's a rebuke by Jeremiah to his friend, his scribe Baruch. And it should have really followed chapter 36 after Baruch wrote down the message that Jeremiah dictated to him. When Jeremiah was in prison and he bought the property in Anathoth, Baruch carried out the transgression for him. I'm sorry, the transaction for him. He had the paper signed and carried through with all of the necessary work to buy the land. And then finally, Baruch was taken down into Egypt with Jeremiah, according to chapter 43, verse 6. The prophecy here in chapter 45 to Baruch was actually given during the reign of King Jehoiakim. And even though it seems like it may be in chronological order in the book of Jeremiah, it's not. And even though the prophecy was given back during the reign of King Jehoiakim, it's recorded here, probably to encourage Baruch, because the Lord had already told Baruch what would happen to him if he identified himself with Jeremiah the prophet. So the prophecy should be encouraging to Baruch when he's forced to go to Egypt with the remnant of Judah. So let's begin with chapter 46 and uh, beginning with verses 1 through 3. I'm sorry, chapter 45, beginning with verses 1 through 3, which is Baruch's complaint. So beginning with verse 1 in chapter 45, it says, The word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he had written these words in a book at the instruction of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying... Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch. You said, Woe is me now, for the Lord has added grief to my sorrow. I fainted in my sighing, and I find no rest. So this is Baruch's complaint. He says, I'm overwhelmed with problems. Haven't I had enough already? And now the Lord has added more to my, to my life. He says, I'm worn out from sighing and I can't find any rest. Jeremiah knew about Baruch's, uh, Baruch's complaint of accusing God of adding sorrow to his, to his pain. Baruch was worn out with his groaning and he didn't find any rest for his misery. Now his complaint sounds a lot like Jeremiah's grief in his confessions back in chapter uh, 15. It's not clear what was bothering Baruch. We don't know what his pain was, but he may have had an unpleasant experience like Jeremiah did, or there was a threat to him of bodily harm. Even maybe he had personal ambitions. Maybe he wanted to be somebody, but he realized Jeremiah wasn't going to be successful. 
at least the way he was seeing things and the way they were going with Jeremiah. So because of his connection to Jeremiah, he felt that you know, his life was ruined. Maybe he was just preoccupied with the thought, man, what am I going to get or what have I gotten for all of this, you know, all of my sacrifice? It's also been suggested without any really solid support or foundation that, that Baruch was unhappy because he hadn't received a prophetic word. You know, he hadn't been told that maybe he was going to take over Jeremiah's position, you know, after Jeremiah was gone. Look at verses 4 through 5 now. Thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built, I will break down, and what I have planted, I will pluck up. That is the whole land. And do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them, for behold, I will bring adversity on all flesh, says the Lord. But I will give your life to you as a prize in all places wherever you go up. Now here's the Lord's assurance to Baruch. The Lord told Jeremiah, this is what I want you to tell Baruch. Tell him that I will destroy this nation that I built and I will uproot what I planted. What God was doing was reminding Baruch that he was sovereign and that he had sovereign control over the affairs of men. As Isaiah 46.10 says, God said, everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. And verse 4 might be the best clue, the best reason for Baruch's complaint. It might not have been because of a personal thing. He might have been overwhelmed knowing the tragedy that was coming on Jerusalem that would involve, it would include him and his family and his friends. And he needed to be reminded that God was in control. As many times we need to be reminded, God is in control no matter how bleak the outlook might be. God is in control of what happens to our lives. And he was reminding Baruch here that God was in control of what would happen to Judah. And then verse 5 suggests that Baruch was personally ambitious. And that's why he got this rebuke. Maybe Baruch saw himself as the great deliverer of his people from the coming judgments, and this people would never forget his name. But God warned him, Baruch, hey, don't seek to be great. Don't seek greatness because the disaster could not be stopped. And Baruch's only reward for his faithful service would be escaping with his life, God said. It would be like a reward. Wherever you go, you'll, you're, you know, you'll escape with your life. Times were bad. And Jeremiah gave Baruch a warning about, being, about greatness and an encouragement about cares there in verse 5. And we're going to look especially at the warning about greatness. Jeremiah warns Baruch not to seek greatness in the world. And you know what? This applies, this warning applies to all of us. And there are three reasons why we're not to seek greatness in the world. First of all, public opinion determines who's who in this world. This world basically makes you who you are if that's what you're seeking, public opinion. If you want to be great in the world, you will become a slave to the public, to the public and to public opinion, to what they think about you. 
you'll be significantly affected and influenced by polls and people's praises. But understand, and we saw it with the Lord, people are so fickle. Remember when Jesus in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, that night or that afternoon, they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us. Three days later, they were saying, crucify him, crucify him. They love you one minute and they hate you the next. Don't be a slave or a puppet to public opinion. It matters what God's, God thinks and not people. It won't satisfy you. And you can't satisfy everyone all the time. And it's not fun being a slave to public opinion. And to those who seek to be great in the world, they're not happy people. Jesus said this in Matthew 11, verses 16 through 19. He said, what can I compare this generation to? The people have been like spoiled children whining to their parents. We wanted to skip rope, and you were always too tired. We wanted to talk, but you were always too busy. John came fasting, and they called him crazy. I came, Jesus said, I came fast feasting, and they called me a lush, a friend of the riffraff. Opinion polls don't count for much, do they? And I'm reading this from the New Living Translation. The second thing, the second reason not to seek worldly ambition Worldly greatness corrupts you. Worldly greatness corrupts you. To be great in the world, you'll have to be promoted by the world. And this world is not in the habit of promoting good people. Remember when Abraham and Lot split up? Lot, remember, set his tent toward Sodom? And then after a while, Lot gradually left his tent and he settled down in Sodom. And instead of Lot keeping his eyes on the heavenly city like Abraham did, Lot looked toward Sodom, and then he started to walk by sight, not by faith. Then he moved his tent near Sodom, and then he finally moved into Sodom. Lot's location in the gate, remember they, it says that he was sitting in the city gates? Well, that location, that's, that means he was a man of some authority. Because that's where the official business was, con uh, con was conducted. So, worldliness is not a matter of, of physical geography. But it's the attitude of the heart. Lot's heart was in Sodom way before his body got there. And no doubt he got his first love for the world when he went to Egypt with Abraham. And remember, Egypt is a type of the world. And that's why God don't, said, don't go back there. And Lot never got over that. You will lose favor with the world in a hurry if you insist on living a holy, uncompromising life. So if you're going to move up in this world in greatness, politics, or other things, you'll find out real fast that the price of popularity, fame, and worldly status is corruption. And in order to seek worldly greatness, you have to forget about your character. Because character will get in the way of achieving worldly fame. And the third reason we see for not uh, uh, you know, seeking worldly ambition is the def defect of greatness. Worldly greatness isn't true greatness. Worldly greatness isn't, the greatness, isn't greatness in God's sight. God's not impressed with the world's rewards or awards. You know, we, we, we see the world honor 
the world in different ways through, you know, movies, the Oscars and Emmys and, and Golden Globes and whatever else there is out there. But these rewards attest to the fact that those people were best in worldly endeavors, which worldly endeavors are not always the best thing. So instead of trying to be great in the world, seek to be great before God in your faith and holiness and character. We definitely will not impress the world, but you know what? You'll impress God. Mark 9, 35, Jesus said, whoever wants to be the greatest must be the least and the servant of all. As Jesus said, he didn't come to be served, but to serve. So Baruch should have been thankful that he would escape the coming destruction with his life. You know, it'd be like a soldier escaping injury and death after his army has been defeated in battle. And that should have been enough of a reward for, for Baruch's faithful service to Jeremiah. So verse 5 is concerned with a biblical view of rewards and punishment. Now, honest questions wouldn't question the principle. But sometimes they insist on their own understanding of blessing. And blessing is often equated with material prosperity. In other words, the more I have, the more God has blessed me. And that can be true. But that isn't the, 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 the actuality of, of God blessing me. I may have nothing and still be the most blessed person on earth. Now, the idea of that came from the Old Testament because God said, if you did this, this, and this, I'll do this, this, and this. So blessing in the Old Testament was, you know, uh, uh, material things was a form of God blessing. And that's why blessing is often equated with material things, the, the things that I get in this world, just like it was in old Israel. But the lesson to be learned from Baruch's complaint is that God is the one who decides what the rewards should be for faithful service. And it might not be what we would expect or want it to be. You could say to Baruch, Baruch, life isn't fair. The world isn't fair. But you know what? You're alive. You're alive. And then in chapters 46 through 51, these chapters cover the final prophecies of Jeremiah addressed to the Gentile nations for the most part. It started with chapter 46, the prophecy against Egypt. And then in chapter 47, the prophecy against Philistia and Tyre. And then in chapter 48, it was the prophecy against Moab. Uh, in chapter 49, it was the prophecy against the Ammonites, Edom, and Damascus, and Elam. And then in chapter 50 through 51, it was the prophecy against Babylon. So chapter 46, verses 2 through 28, covers Egypt. Verses 2 through 12 covers Egypt's defeat. So now let's begin with chapter 46, verses 1 and 2. And we read, The word of the Lord which came to Jeremiah the prophet against the nations, against Egypt, concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates in Carchemish, in which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. So verse 1 is an introduction, the beginning of the messages relating to the nearby nations that were just mentioned in verses 1 and 2, in chapters 46 through 51. Pharaoh Necho is mentioned in the books of Kings. And first of all, Pharaoh Necho brought the Egyptian army against the Assyrians and Josiah, 
the good king of Assyria, the one that brought about change, the one who decided to go out and take on the powerful Egyptians. He was told not to, but he did it anyway. He went to Megiddo to fight against the Egyptians, and he was killed there by Pharaoh Necho and taken back to Jerusalem and buried. Now, four years later, Pharaoh Necho decided to send his troops against Babylon. And in those days, Egypt was always one of the major powers uh, there in ancient history. Egypt's glory was known all over the world. The pyramids and all of those amazing structures there in Egypt. It was a nation of luxury and power, respect, and one of the leading nations of the old world. So this is the beginning of Egypt's, power, uh, Egypt's downfall here. Egypt would never again experience the glory that she had before Pharaoh Necho's failure in trying to conquer Babylon. So this, in the time that the Egyptian army had been sent against Babylon, and it was the fourth year of, of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, so this is now the call to battle. Look at verses 3 through 6. Order the buckler and shield and draw near to battle. Harness the horses and mount up, you horsemen. Stand forth with your helmets. Polish the spears. Put on the armor. Why have I seen them dismayed and turned back? Their mighty ones are beaten down. They have speedily fled and did not look back, for fear was all around, says the Lord. Do not let the swift flee away, nor the mighty man escape. They will stumble and fall toward the north by the river Euphrates. So here in verses 3 through 6, we have the call to battle and the terrible defeat and the escape of the Egyptian army. Before the battle, the officers ordered their chariot drivers to prepare their shield for action. Now the buckler that's mentioned in verse 3, the buckler was a large shield. And it was usually rectangular or oval, and that shield covered the soldier's whole body. And then we see in verse 3, the small shield. The small shield was usually round, and it was held with the left arm, you know, over the left arm, and it would ward off blows of arrows or spears. The officers ordered their troops to put on their helmets, probably leather, and worn only in battle. And then with the command there in verse 4 to polish the spears and put on the armor, these were either leather or material that metal scales were attached to when the Egyptians faced the enemy. But there's no record of the fight itself. It only describes the defeat of the Egyptian army. So by not take, talking about the battle, it's an indirect, but way, uh, indirect way of mocking uh, or, or pointing out the detailed prepare, uh, preparations of the Egyptians, their embarrassing defeat, and their running away. So again, it was just a mocking of their defeat. Because their troops were crushed, they took off running like jackrabbits, and they were experiencing terror all around them. And nobody could get away from the Babylonians. Even the fast men couldn't get away. It says they stumble and they fell in the confusion of running away. Verses 7 and 8. Who is this coming up like a flood whose waters move like the rivers? Egypt rises up like a flood and its waters move like the rivers. And he says, I will go up and cover the earth. I will destroy the city and its inhabitants. So the coming Egyptian army is compared to the yearly flooding of the Nile. Egypt boasted about how it would conquer the earth in the same uncontrollable way, uncontrollable way that the Nile would flood the land. And it also boasted how it would destroy cities and their people. Verses 9 and 10. Come up, O horses, and rage, O chariots, and let the mighty men come forth. 
the Egyptians and the Libyans who handle the shield and the Lydians who handle and bend the bow. For this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge himself on, on his adversaries. The sword, shall de, uh, the sword shall devour, it shall be satiated and made drunk with their blood. For the Lord God of hosts has a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. The Egyptians were very wealthy. And their armies were made up mostly of mercenaries, paid soldiers, not Egyptians. But they hired men of Ethiopia and the Libyans and these Lydians. They'd hire them, and again, they were mercenary soldiers that would fight for Egypt. But the Egyptians, they were really very weakened by their luxuries, their, their, their ease of life. And it says in verse 10, For this is the day of the Lord God of hosts. It's a day of vengeance. So God's vengeance... God's vengeance because of the death of the good king Josiah. After Josiah was killed, they came, they took over Jerusalem, and they made the Israelites set up a battle king. So Jehoiakim was the battle king. He was set up by Pharaoh Necho, and he was made to pay tribute to collect taxes and to pay tribute to the Egyptians. So it's a day of the vengeance. It's a day of the vengeance for God. It says that he may avenge himself on his adversaries. And the sword's going to devour, he says, and it shall be satiated and shall drink its fill of their blood for the Lord. The Lord of hosts has a sacrifice in the north country, which is by the river Euphrates. So it's going to be a real bloodbath for the Egyptians. Verses 11 through 10. Go up to Gilead and take balm. O virgin, the daughter of Egypt, in vain you will use many medicines. You shall not be cured. The nations have heard of your shame, and your cry has filled the land. For the mighty man has stumbled against the mighty. They both have fallen together. Egypt, Egypt here, in verses 11 and 12, it's, it, she's called, Egypt is called a virgin daughter. And it's a name that's usually used for Israel. And it may suggest that because of Egypt's location, it helped it to enjoy safety and protection like a virgin living in her father's house. So Jeremiah teased the Egyptians by telling them to get some balm from Gilead for protection. And Gilead was, was known for its medicinal value. But in their situation, what they were going to deal with, nothing would help them. Nothing would be able to bring healing to the Egyptians. Their wound was incurable. So the metaphor communicated a sure warning that its defeat was going to be a sure thing. They couldn't escape the defeat. Other nations would hear of their shame as Egypt's cries were heard all throughout the land. And in a, a kind of a, a comedy scene, it says in verse 12 that Egypt's soldiers are pictured stumbling and tripping over each other as they tried to get away from their enemy. Now verses 13 through 24 covers Egypt's coming defeat by Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verses 13 through 17. The word that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet, how Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, would come and strike the land of Egypt. Declare in Egypt and proclaim in Migdal. Proclaim in Noph and in Tophanes. Say, stand fast and prepare yourselves, for the sword devour, devours all around you. Why are your valiant men swept away? Did, uh, they did not stand because the Lord drove them away. He made many fall, yes, fell one upon another. 
And they said, Arise, let us go back to our people and to the land of our activity from the oppressing sword. They cried there, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is but a noise. He has passed by the appointed time. So the enemy was at Egypt's borders. And the, the alarm to get ready for battle sounded in those cities that were mentioned in verses 14. When a nation was defeated in battle in these ancient times, the credit for the defeat was given to its gods. Even if the army was victorious, the gods were the ones who got the credit rather than the, than the skill of the generals or the better armies or good battle plans. Egypt would fall, but not by King Nebuchadnezzar's might. Because verse 15 says, notice, the Lord drove them away. The warriors would stumble and they'd fall over each other, desperately trying to get away from the Babylonians. So verse 16 says, the mercenaries decided to go back to their people, to the land where they were born, and they would say, let's get away from the sword of the enemy. So Pharaoh's enemies, they would show their hatred for him by calling him, notice, a noise. They call him a noise here. Right? Or a loud mouth, basically. Because Pharaoh was making all of these mouthy speeches, if you will, about what they were going to do. It was just a lot of big talk. The Pharaoh had been talking big now about how they were going to handle these Babylonians. We're going to wipe them out. He says, and we're going to send their bodies back to their families to cry over. But when it came right down to it, they said, that guy's just a loud noise. He's just a loud mouth. There's nothing behind his words. He's all noise. Verses 18 and 19. As I live, says the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts, surely as Tabor is among the mountains and as Carmel by the sea, so he shall come. O you daughter dwelling in Egypt, prepare yourself to go into captivity, for Noph shall be waste and desolate without inhabitant. So with a formal oath, it says, he said, as I live, the true king spoke, not the loud noise, not the loud mouth. He said, one was coming who would tower over Egypt, like Mount Tabor at Mount, and Mount Carmel. They towered over the landscape. Now, both of these mountains are over 1,700 feet. Now, they're not very high for a mountain, but because the land was flat, they could be seen from a long distance. Verse 19 says, the Lord warns you who dwell in Egypt. He warned them to pack up their bags because they're going to go into exile. Noph was going to be made waste and desolate, it says there. It would be just a pile of ruins. Verse 20 through 21. Egypt is a very pretty heifer, but destruction comes. It comes from the north. Also her mercenaries are in her midst like fat bulls, for they also are turned back. They have fled away together. They did not stand, for the day of their calamity had come upon them, the time of their punishment. So Jeremiah described Egypt as a pretty heifer. In other words, as a sleek, it, Egypt was as sleek as a beautiful young cow. But then it said destruction. Notice destruction was going to come. Now, the word destruction here, it talks about some kind of an insect, like a, maybe it was a horse fly that would come from the north and it was coming against them. And a horse fly was an insect that buzzed, that buzzed, buzzed loudly and it inflicted a painful but not fatal bite on the cattle. So the meaning of the metaphor is clear 
that Nebuchadnezzar's invasion of Egypt, it would be like the sting of the horsefly, but it wouldn't be deadly. It wouldn't be a fatal sting. So in Egypt's earlier glory days, they hated foreigners. Now, though, it was using mercenaries, non-Jews, who were among them. But the Egyptians were like pampered, fatted calves here. And they would fail in the day of the battle against King Nebuchadnezzar because they weren't disciplined for the tough times of warfare, for the hardships of warfare. So they would run away from the invading army. Verse 22 through 24. Her noise shall go like a serpent, for they shall march with an army and come against her with axes like those who would chop wood. They shall cut down her forest, says the Lord, though it cannot be searched because they are innumerable and more numerous than grasshoppers. Verse 24, the daughter of Egypt shall be ashamed, and she shall be delivered into the hand of the people of the north. As the enemy came closer, Egypt would respond with the helpless like hiss of a snake trying to get away. Now, a snake looks scary, but it slithers away harmlessly when it faces danger. The enemy would come against Egypt, it says here, like a woodsman with axes, cutting down all the trees as they got closer and closer, as they chased the snake through the forest, no matter how thick it might be. The Babylonian invaders would be as numerous as locusts, Jeremiah says. Egypt would be humiliated, embarrassed. It would be handed over to the enemy from the north, Babylon. And Egypt's fate verifies the truth of Proverbs 16, 18. It says, pride goes before destruction. Verses 25 through 26. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel says, Behold, I will bring punishment on Ammon of No, and Pharaoh and Egypt with their gods and their kings, Pharaoh and those who trust in them. And I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their lives, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of his servants. Afterward, it shall be inhabited as in the days of old, says the Lord. So this is a word of hope now to Egypt. The messages of judgment on Egypt is now followed by an unexpected word of hope for the proud but powerless nation. God was going to punish Ammon of No, which is the god of Thebes, who worshipped in the temple of Karnak. Ammon eventually was merged with Re, the god Re, to become Ammon-Re, which was the highest deity of all Egypt. And then hope is given for Egypt, notice in verse 26. He says, and I will deliver them. God says, and I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their lives, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of his servants. Afterward, it shall be inhabited as in the days of old, says the Lord. So again, hope is given for Egypt there in verse 26. After after they were handed over to Nebuchadnezzar, Egypt would later be inhabited like it was in the past. Babylon's defeat of Egypt by Nebuchadnezzar was in 568 B.C., but it wasn't for very long. Destruction by his armies was minimal, minimal, and he soon withdrew, withdrew without showing any superiority over them politically and materially. Verses 27 through 28, as we close. But do not fear, notice, O my servant Jacob, and do not be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, have rest, be at ease, and no one shall make them afraid. 
Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, says the Lord, for I am with you. For I will make a complete end of all the nations to which I have driven you. But I will not make a complete end of you. I will rightly correct you, for I will not leave you wholly unpunished. These verses 27 through 28 are words of assurance to Israel. God tells Israel, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. He says, I'm going to bring you home again from the distant lands, and your children are going to return from their exile. So Israel would, would return to a life of peace and quiet, and, and God says, no one's going to terrorize you. So he said, don't be afraid, because I am with you. He says, I am going to completely destroy the nations to which I have exiled you, but I won't completely destroy you. I'll discipline you, but it's going to be with justice. I like that. He says, I'm going to discipline you, but it's going to be fair. It's going to be fair discipline because I can't let you go unpunished. God must punish those that, again, are undisciplined. In closing, God punished his people in order to bring them back to himself. And that's, that's why he punishes us. He disciplines us. It's to bring us back to him. And he punishes us to correct us and to purify us, to get us back on track. Now, we don't like it. We don't welcome it. We don't invite it. We don't enjoy it. You know, it, it, no one enjoys punishment. But we should all welcome what it does to us. We should welcome its results, which is correction and purity. Now, they shouldn't have been there. But a group of Jews was in Egypt. And this invasion would affect them in a bad way. And so the remnant in Judah and the exiles in Babylon would hear of this victory and this wonder and say, can anything on earth stop Nebuchadnezzar? They didn't think that what God said was going to take place. Can anybody on earth stop Nebuchadnezzar? And yet God promised them that he would release them from Babylon in 70 years. But the way things were looking, Babylon <clears throat> was getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And you know, when we, when we have those difficulties where they seem to just get tougher and tougher or worse and worse, we go, we, we have that doubt that even God, I know what God said, but things just, it just doesn't look like it can happen. But we need to always remember God's word will come to pass no matter how bad things look. And when we look around us today, we can really get bummed out. And it just seems like, Lord, we're losing the battle. But we've got to remember in Revelation how it ends. We're going to win. God's word will come to pass no matter what the news says, no matter what the world looks like. God promised here, and he promises us, I will save you. I will wipe out the nations, but I won't wipe you out. Two times the Lord said, don't be afraid to his people. And again, we got to remember that. Don't be afraid. No matter how dark the days get, no matter how bleak the future looks, God always gives people the bright light of hope. How? Through his promises. Through his word. As the psalmist said in Psalm 30, verse 5, for his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. 
Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. And Father, I love that verse. It's one of my favorites from long ago, Lord, because it was one that ministered to me and just got me through difficult times, Lord. Father, it's a great promise, and it's one that we have to lean on by faith because he does say that weeping endures for a night, but joy is coming in the morning, and we just don't know what morning, but it's a promise, and we know it's coming, and we know it will come. So, Father, let us remember, and let us keep our eyes fixed on the promises that you've given us through your word, Lord. Though the days are dark, you are the light. Though the future does not look promising, you are the promise. So, Lord, may we just, again, keep looking up and knowing that our redemption is drawing nigh. That that, that, that day to be with you is, we're, we're, is around the corner, God. You're standing at the threshold, Jesus, and you're just waiting for the word of the Father. Go get your bride. So, Father, we're just um, we're thankful for the promise, Lord, and, and just let us wait faithfully, God, for the coming of that day. And we thank you. And it's in Jesus' wonderful name that we pray. Amen.